This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. And welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and I'm here at the Caja Magica, the magic box just south of central Madrid for the Mutua Madrid Open, the second of the ATP Masters 1000s on clay this year. I'm alongside Reem Aboulel, esteemed tennis writer, probably writes more column inches than any other writer on tour. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we will look ahead to what is a stacked draw here in Madrid that includes Roger Federer for the first time in a couple of years. I'll also ask Reem if it's possible or utter madness to be writing off the chances of Rafael Nadal at this stage. We also hear from another great Spaniard, David Ferrer, who calls time on his wonderful career this week. And we finish with an exclusive interview with Jamie Delgado, coach of Andy Murray, and a man who's more than familiar with life in Spain. But first of all, Reem, so much to talk about. Quite possibly the strongest ATP draw in a while. Um, you looking forward to Madrid? Definitely looking forward. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see from the fir- the draw, you can see the first rounds, you can see possible second rounds, you can see so many different storylines. It's actually going to be really interesting. We're here at one end of this wonderful complex. There's kind of water all around it. It's odd because it feels like an indoor venue a lot of the time because you are indoors outside watching the games you're kind of outside but it's odd in a way to be overlooking this wonderful water feature what do you make of the Mutua Madrid Open? I think it's the most unique tennis venue I think that uh, if it's your first time here you will feel a little bit like it's a maze I have been lost here many times in the past I thankfully I feel like I know my way around now uh, it's it's interesting I think they've made something that is great I think a lot of the players like the fact that there are three courts that have roofs which makes it great that you can cover the, the courts and play in the rain uh, so yeah I mean it's, it's very interesting and I think Magic Box is quite a, an apt <laughs> name for it yeah there have been some uh, funny results here in the past um, Let's start with the big news, the good news for tournament director Feliciano Lopez. Roger Federer, back here for the first time in a couple of years. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, he's skipped the clay season altogether the last two seasons. And in 2016, he skipped Roland Garros. So actually for the French Open, it's going to be his first time since 2015, which is quite a long time. Uh, Definitely exciting. We can see it around the grounds. Already fans have been here since qualifying started. And and everyone's looking forward to just catch glimpses of him. Yesterday, he had an open practice with Robin Hassa. And there were a lot of people in the stands for that. And I think it's it's great that he decided to, to play the clay. I think that I saw him sliding yesterday like he's been doing this every single year I mean he is actually a pleasure to watch on this surface yeah he's a well he's a three-time champion here isn't he only Nadal's won it more than him Um, given that he's had so little competitive clay court matches how much can we expect how much of a genuine contender is Roger Federer this week 
I think Roger's the kind of person who doesn't show up at tournaments when he feels he's not ready. I think he's gotten used to not having too many matches under his belt on any surface because he's not playing as much as he used to anyway. So most of the time he is showing up to tournaments having not played in a month or two or something like that. We've seen how he went to Dubai and hadn't played since losing in the fourth round of the Australian Open and he ended up winning that title. So I feel like we shouldn't read too much into it, especially that the clay here is unlike elsewhere just because of the altitude and the ball flies and kind of the conditions suit Roger a bit so I mean looking at his draw it, this draw it's any anyone can win to be honest it's quite tight yeah it's an it's an amazing draw we'll come on to that in a minute you, you've spoken with Roger a fair amount in Dubai which is where he bases himself for part of the year what do you think this means the fact that he's playing clay this year is it is he it feels like he might be saying his farewells but nobody knows of course to be honest, I asked him flat out in Dubai. I asked him, I told him, listen, your fans freaked out when you said you're going to play the Clay and French Open because they feel that this is your farewell tour. And he was like, really? Is that what people think? And I'm like, really, Roger? So I asked him flat out and he said that wasn't my thinking at all. It was purely me telling my team, I want to play on Clay. I just want to do it. I haven't been there in a couple of years and I want to do it. So he, he says that that's not the case. Maybe people are reading too much into it. Maybe not. You never know. Uh, I think at this stage, maybe it's a new challenge for him. He's, he's coming up with challenges for himself because it is a challenge to get his body ready for the clay and get used to clay court tennis. And maybe that's what keeps him going. Let's look at the top half of the draw because Roger Federer is in it. He's in the same quarter of the draw as Dominic Thiem um, and the same half of the draw as Novak Djokovic. What stands out for you immediately in the top half? I think it's, it's quite a stacked top half, I would say. I think the, the draw for Novak is not easy and I think the draw for Roger is not easy because he could potentially play Richard Gasquet in the first round or Alejandro Davidovich Fukina, who's already doing great for, for a young up-and-comer. So I think it's not going to be easy, but if you think about it, anywhere he lands was never going to be easy. Of course, having Dominic Thiem, who is the informed player at the moment, having just won Barcelona, beating Rafael Nadal there, definitely Thiem is the informed player, so having him in his quarter is not easy. Gael Monfils is also in there. Um, I mean, Cecchinato, who was the semifinals at the French Open last year. Novak might get Grigor Dimitrov in the first round. That's rough as well. So I feel that it's like a top half heavy draw. Yeah, watching the draw ceremony take place on Saturday, heads were shaking as the first few names came out. I mean, the first few names other than the top seeds were Shadi, Tsonga, Schwartzman, Kyrgios, Struff. I mean, all these guys have been playing such great clay court tennis that the draw is absolutely stacked. And this is Novak's half of course who is favorite for you to come through the top half of the draw and that's a massive question i know it's the obvious one but i would probably say dominic team to be honest and he did well here last year as well he had this huge win over rafa rafa could barely get a game in that match against team and made he made the final before losing to sasha zverev and so i i, I would say team he does have a potential i'd say that's a third round against fabio fonini uh, that's a difficult one because we know Fabio obviously won Monte Carlo. But I think Team has said multiple times that he really likes the conditions here. He feels that it's, he says it's perfect for his game. And we've seen how, we've seen how aggressive he can be on these courts on clay. He is a giant in the, in the top half of the draw, there's no doubt. There are more giants in the bottom half of the draw. Among them, Rafael Nadal. We'll talk about him shortly. But first, 
Let's hear from one of his countrymen in the same half of the draw, the bottom half. He's here playing the final tournament in an illustrious career. 37-year-old, former world number three, David Ferrer. Playing my, my, my last tournament in Madrid, so very emotional. Uh, I have a very good memories on, on the tour. And I'm really happy to, to play the last the tournaments that I, I would like to play. Uh, and for me, it's very special finish in my career in Madrid with my family, with my fans and, and in home. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and it's, I am a, a lucky man to, to finish in Madrid. Have you been surprised by the affection that people have shown you? Uh, you know, uh, I have a, a lot of good friends on the tour. For me, it was a surprise that the people, you know, uh, tell me uh, very good things about my career and my, my partners of the tour, my, uh, you know, uh, everybody. It was a surprise for me and I'm really happy to finish my career doing a good, a good tennis and a good uh, person thing. Can I take you back to the beginning? There was, there was a time when you quit playing tennis, wasn't there? Can you tell us when that was and, and why that happened? Well, I played happened? one time in, uh, with 16 or 17 years old because my, well, I remember I was in, Bar in Barcelona and my results was not so good, uh, you know, I am very, very sad. And it, it was very important, my, the support of my family in, in, in that moment, uh, you know, my, my father and my, and my mother, they support me, me a lot, uh, you know, they, they was there in the important moments and, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, they give me uh, the education, uh, they give me everything of my, of my life and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful about that. Let me come, there are so many victories in your career, <clears throat> mm -hmm. it's going to be difficult to talk about all of them, but yeah. can I take you back to your first victory on tour then, in Bucharest? in 2002. Yeah. How much do you remember about that? Well, I remember, of course, because it was my, my first ATP, uh, ATP trophy. So um, I remember that I was with my uh, Javier Piles, not coach now, but, you know, I have been a lot of years working with, with him and it was very special, um, you know. Uh, of course, it was in, in Bucharest, it's not my, my country, but anyway, the first uh, trophy I was is, is special. You won three times in Valencia. Were they particularly special for you? Maybe uh, when, I, when I won, I don't remember now who I won. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Alexander Dolgopolov, maybe that in, in the Agora, because I won one time in Include tennis Valencia that it was on clay court, but for me it was more special on, on hard court on, on the Agora because the you know the the center court it was different to other one and it was very very nice uh, you know I had very good memories on Valencia because I was um, you know a part of the tournament with Juan Carlos Ferrero and I have a very good memories there. Many people of course remember your triumph in Paris in. 2012. Yeah. How significant was that for you as a person, as a, as, a, as a player, because it came at such a high level? It was significant a lot because, uh, you know, I, I was a, a consolidated top 10 tennis player, but never won 
Master 1000. And for me, it was very important uh, win there. And also, it was my my best my best year in my career in two thousand twenty twelve because I played my best tennis. Uh, I was uh, my fitness it was impressive, and my mind and mentality. You know, I was uh, getting up on, on top. And uh, for me, it's uh, the, the best tournament that I won, and I had lucky because my my wife and and you know my my manager or my close friend Albert Moina, they were there, and it was important for me. Uh, wanted to be consolidated uh, the next year's uh, top ten tennis player, but winning a Master One Thousand. No, it was you know one uh, thing that. I needed to, to to win that. Did you see yourself at that point yeah. as a winner of a Grand Slam tournament then? Because you'd made the step up yeah. to Masters 1000 level. Did you think to yourself, I can do this now, I can do this at Grand Slam level? Yeah, maybe, but I have a very good uh, career. You know, I won a lot of matches. I have been seven years uh, top 10 tennis player. So I try to do my best. Uh, I cannot uh, do any more that I did you know? I remember when I did final in in Rangaros in 2013. Uh, it was very very nice, but I maybe I didn't play so good because uh, I have not experience to to play uh, a final. And Rafael in that moment, well, in that moment not. Always he was better than me on clay court, and and it was difficult to beat him, but. Anyway, I am uh, quiet because uh, I, I try to do my best always in my career. And okay, I know I don't have a Grand Slam, but I have other things, and it's uh, no, no problem, <laughs> no worries. You have twenty-seven titles. That is an awful lot. Rafa was in the way that day at, at Roland Garros. <laughs> I mean, he's he's obviously been in the way a lot, um, and you've played in this extraordinary era. Has it helped you become an even better player than you might have been? Yes, of course. Rafael and, and his family, they helped me a lot on my career because, you know, when uh, when I saw Rafael and he was getting up, you know, for me, I I, I learned a lot uh, about him. Also with, with him because he was close to me and he's a, a good friend, but also with Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer or Andy Murray. I was better. Uh, thanks to them, thanks to them. So, uh, well, for me, it's not bad luck. It was a, a good luck, and and maybe for that, I was uh, uh, finished one year number three of the world. You said Rafa wasn't your most difficult opponent. That was Roger. Why? Uh, maybe Roger, because I never win uh, Roger in 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 my career. I, I lost. 17 times so why I don't know why because the game the, the Roger game is uh, is different he you know he he's the, the best tennis player of the history and it's difficult to beat him but no uh, and with Rafa it's similar the, the game is similar like me and I have more more, more chance in some in some times but Mm, well, maybe it was a, it was a bad thing never win Roger Federer one time until last tournament, but 
no worries, Roger Federer is the best tennis player of the history and I know that I am not the only player that never win Roger Federer. We're speaking in Spain and you are loved right across the country here and I'm sure that's a large part to do with your Davis Cup wins. How proud are you of that success? Uh, I'm very proud because I have the best memories from my career on Davis Cup. Uh, it was very, very special. I have a very good friends like uh, Fernando Verrasco, Feliciano Lopez and Rafael Nadal. You know, we have similar age and we, we travel a lot together with the same team. And we had the chance to win three times. It was very, very nice. I remember the second time that I uh, that we win the, the we won the Davis Cup on Seville. Uh, maybe that one it was the, the very special for me because I won Juan Martin del Potro. You know there is 25,000 people watching. You know that match and it's nice. Every Davis Cup, of course, it was good, but maybe the 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 most special was in Seville. What was the best match you ever played? Maybe the, the, the final Davis Cup on Prague with uh, Thomas Berdic. We lost the final with uh, Republika Checa, but you know what, I, maybe there I played my best tennis in on my career uh, because it wasn't on indoor hardcore, very very fast and, and, and play and, and very old. I won Thomas Berdic in three sets playing amazing tennis. You've got a little boy now, yeah. um, and you're going to tell him about some of these memories one day soon. Um, what's that going to be like to, to to tell him the stories of your tennis career? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, sure that he he will see something about me when I was a tennis player, but I don't know what I will I will say to him. I will try to to give uh, him. Uh, the best education as possible and uh, and a good opportunities for they make uh, that he like he likes him so so for me it's very important now to be with with him to be uh, you know growing because he's growing a lot he's a baby. And I travel a lot in my career, and for me now that I am finishing my, my career, I have more time to be in home with my, my family, and that is my priority in, in this moment. Do you think, as a father, you will make your son work hard? Because we know you, you work hard. <laughs> You've worked hard your whole Maybe career. Maybe he has the gen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, work hard and to be happy is the, is the most important. And, to be consistent and and accept the the bad moments is part of the of the life. You can be always be happy, but you can you know uh, get it up always when you have a, a, a bad moment. Do you have regrets at all? Mm, yes, of course, of course. If I come back, you know, ten years ago, I will change. I, I change change it a lot of things on my. On my life and, and with my my tennis career, but what kind know, of things? Well, maybe my uh, you know to to say the important things in the moment. No wait to 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 say that, or maybe 
uh, you know, change the, the, the practice, uh, the, the, the type of practice, the fitness, a lot of things. But, but you know, that is uh, it's part of my life and part of my career. And uh, it was good because I, 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 I improve a lot. I learn a lot for to, to not do again that things. We all wish we knew things when we were younger, don't we, as we get older. <laughs> it's part of getting older. Yeah. Um, listen, when you have played your final match yeah. and you've put the bandana on the court yeah. for the final time, yeah. what are you expecting to feel? I don't want to expect nothing in these moments. I want to enjoy every moment, every point, every sensation that I am, I am doing in these moments. After that, of course, it's going to be very emotional and very, you know, uh, very difficult that moment. But I want to enjoy uh, before that. I want to enjoy the, the match that I will, I will play until last point. Like you have your whole career. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Green. David Ferrer, 19 years on tour. I mean, what a wonderful player. Well, first of all, what are your main memories, your favorite memories of watching him play? To be honest, for me, it might not be the obvious thing at all, but there's a small exhibition that they play in Abu Dhabi, and I always saw him there. He went there multiple times, so I would always start my year with David Ferrer. I'd spend a lot of time with him there talking to him, and he is so popular everywhere in the world. I think the thing that stands out when you say David Ferreira's work ethic, that's what, what people like about him. And of course, the French Open final, that was a special moment for him and all of his fans. And he's just a great guy. He's just such a nice guy. Yeah, we have a tribute to David Ferrer coming later in the week. We've been asking not just the top players, but all the players, their memories of Ferrer, what they think about him. And the work ethic shines through, I can, I can assure you. He plays fellow Spaniard Roberto Bautista Agut, for the chance to take on Sasha Zverev, which is a bit of a shame, isn't it? I feel like Roberto Bautista would keep getting himself in this situation because he got Andy Murray on the Australian Open and Andy had just had hinted that maybe it would have been his last match. So he, 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 they keep putting him in these emotional situations. I'm sure he's not happy about this at all. All eyes are then likely to be on Rafael Nadal when he plays the winner of Felix Auger-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov. First of all, let's reflect on that match because these two young Canadians, these two young friends, they were bound to play in the end on a big stage. What do you make of it? Exactly. Actually, I saw this picture of them that they played Junior Davis Cup finals here in Madrid at this venue and, and someone posted that picture today and I was like, oh my God, they must hate the fact that they're going to play each other in the first round. Felix has had an amazing clay court season because he also did well in South America and uh, as much as it's a shame to get them in the first round, as much as it makes it really exciting and whoever gets through that match is going to be a really tough one for Rafa, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's going to play one of the up-and-coming players in the world. Um, what have you made of Rafa in recent weeks? Because it's been a strange time. It has been, but I have to say that Rafa has gone to Roland Garros before having lost matches on clay. Maybe it's the first time that he's got to this stage, in this, the first time since 04 that he's not won a title coming into this stage. But I think at this point, Rafa has been in situations like that where he has recovered just in time for the big one. So I, I'm curious to see how he does here, how he does in Rome before people should panic, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, the loss to team for me was not 
so bad because I think Rafa started playing kind of well in Barcelona and I think that team is this guy who's able to year on year just improve and improve and improve on the surface and he's getting more and more confident we've seen how like he made quarterfinals in Paris and made semis and made final like he, he he's progressing every year so let's see how he does here he was bullied a little bit by team though but the week before that he he looked a little bit lost in a way that we'd not seen him look lost on a clay court before against Fanini and Monte Carlo. Do we sometimes expect too much of Nadal? I think yes, because he makes it look easy. And I think we, it's it's actually ludicrous to think that someone is winning all these tournaments 10 times and 9 times and 11 times. It's not normal, by the way, but he set the standard so high. And in a way, he is a victim of his own success and dominance. Yes, he seemed really lost against Funini. I think Monte Carlo was definitely worrying. But I also think if Rafa is not feeling very fit, maybe he's still getting ready, you never know. And I, I have a feeling that at the end of the day, if he gets to Roland Garros feeling that he's not ready, he's just not going to play it. So we'll see. If he's playing these matches, then he's feeling better physically and he's going to find his way. If he starts Roland Garros, is he still the favorite? Yes. Yes, I think that at the end of the day, his best of five results on clay speak for himself. He's lost like twice in, what, 14 years or something like that? That's, it's, it's a ridiculous statistic. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, if he plays Roland Garros, I think he is the favorite. I think the second favorite is Dominic Thiem. And the third favorite, believe it or not, is Novak Djokovic, who has won the last three slams. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, Sasha Zverev is also in this half of the draw. He's slated to play Stefano Tsitsipas if things kind of follow the seeds the way they should do. Nadal would play Kane Shikori. How do you see that semi-final lining up? To be honest, the, the main person I would worry about Rafa uh, against would be Daniel Medvedev, who's just shaping up on every surface. Uh, so I would like that, for me that would be the biggest uh, like stumbling block for Rafa, I'd say. And then if I have to pick from that top part, um, you never know. I think I think Alexander Zverev is struggling. He hasn't won back-to-back matches since making the final in Acapulco. So and he's uh, yeah, it's not he's not in great shape. I think uh, Karan Khachanov as well, who's the number 11 seed, he's on a five-match losing streak. So there's a lot of names that you'd expect. I would actually maybe think about Borna Chorch. Um, who, who maybe can make it out of that top section. So maybe the semis could be Borna and Rafa. And Rafa to make the final? In that case? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I, 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 I need to see him play to, to figure out where he is. But uh, I think he's won it six times here. So again, home court advantage. He's very comfortable here. He wins a couple of matches. He gets his confidence. So yeah. Why not make it the final? Who's going to win? What's your gut telling you? I know we're still a week to go, but... Uh, I'd say Dominic team. Dominic team. I think you and many people at the moment fancying Dominic team. Reem, as ever, it has been a huge pleasure talking with you. Have a great time in Madrid. We finish this week with a man who is half Spanish and half English. You may want to hang around, Reem, to, to listen to this one too. He lived for the first 10 years of his life in the Canary Islands. He played a record 23 Wimbledons and right now is still the coach of Andy Murray. That is, of course, Jamie Delgado, who I was lucky enough to speak with recently. And we started with his early life growing up in Tenerife. Yeah, I loved it there. That's my... Yeah, I mean, I was born in England, in Birmingham, and uh, my parents were living in Tenerife at the time. It was just that I was, ended up being born in England somehow. But, um, yeah, went to Tenerife, loved it there. It was, it was 
you know, a lot of friends, and not so much family, because I got my family in Madrid, my Spanish side, my dad's side, um, but went to an English school there to keep my English up, because Spanish was my first language, and uh, started playing tennis there when I was like six years old with my dad, and um, and then I came over to England, yeah, when I had an opportunity actually with David Lloyd, um, a tennis scholarship school at Reed School, that I ended up going to until I was about 17, but yeah, the years in Tenerife were amazing, I loved it, great place to live, and yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of close to those roots now in the, in the in the lifestyle kind of feel and the food, the Spanish food and and things like that. And given what you did in your junior career, you know, winning the Orange Bowl at 14, which is a, essentially it's like the Junior U.S. Open, isn't it? Almost, you know, that that sort of level. Um, it must have given you a very good grounding at junior level those years in Tenerife. Yeah, I mean, the the, the there was always a lot of kids there playing. Uh, I think the weather obviously helped because people were. There's no indoor courts there at all, so we always played it outdoors and on hard courts actually, which is not what you'd associate Spanish tennis to be. But um, yeah, but I just I, I did. I think there were some good coaches there for the for the younger kids. You know, taught us good basics and um, yeah. I just I always look back on those years very fondly because I really enjoyed it. It's where I started my tennis and um, yeah. I mean that set me up to, to then play tennis a bit later on. So that those years were very important actually. Looking back now, talking about that transition if you like from juniors to senior tennis how tough was that yeah that's tough because it's um it's obviously still the same game tennis but so many things change the physicality changes a lot um the dedication then has to get much more intense um you know when you when you're playing juniors you you know a lot of it is based on your natural ability um but as you get older people you know other kids get stronger and, and you know you don't have school to worry about anymore so you have more time to improve your, your, your skills um, and you start learning different things how to use your strengths and weaknesses and, and the travel goes up you start seeing your family less so it's, there's a lot of things that happen um, but I think if you if you really love it uh, you know none of those sort of so-called issues or problems if you like you, you know you, you you deal with those and you put up with them because because you love playing so much but it's tough. Not not everyone kind of makes it through, do they? I mean, there's there's some top juniors uh, that don't, you know, make it in the seniors at all, and and there's some that that keep going right to the top of the seniors. And but so there's a bit of a mixed bag there. But it's it definitely prepares you well for the senior games because you, uh, you know, even in the juniors, you're still getting to play the junior grand slams and and nice events, and you get used to playing in front of people and you know under pressure and these kind of things. So it's. Uh, you know, all of these players that are playing here, they've all played junior tennis and, 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 and learnt a lot of important things in those years. Because you're, in, in tennis terms, you're, uh, you know, not huge. Five foot ten, I think I think you are. How difficult, I mean, how difficult was it? But also, how difficult is it now for, you know, guys who are sub six foot to get a foothold in the tour with so many players, you know, up above six foot five? It's, it's becoming a game of giants almost. Yeah, it's a tough one, really. I mean, there's, there's, in terms of the height, there's, there's pluses of, there's obvious pluses for being bigger. You know, the serve is quite dominant. But I think actually, when I was playing senior tennis, it was, I don't want to say more dominant, but the courts were quicker. So it, it was, it was, you know, it's an exceptionally important shot now, obviously. But I don't know if it was even more important before, because, because the, because the courts are a bit slower now. I think points are obviously lasting a bit longer, and then your movement has become much more important than than before. So uh, you know, the bigger that you are, obviously you you're not able to move as well. So it's um, I think it's important to have a you know ideally taller than what I am, 
but um, you don't want to be too tall because then you start taking away from, from the movement. And uh, to get to the top of the game, you know, these guys moving exceptionally well as well. I, don't, I think it's quite tough when you're you know, six foot five, six, 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 seven to then move as well as someone that's maybe six one or six two. Um, so I think for, for tennis, I think the height of six one, six two is kind of perfect, really. Which you look at them and Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, all around that mark, which is where you'd expect them to be, I guess. Yeah. Um, your favourite tour memories? You're, you're looking to the skies because there are so many. Let's start with Wimbledon, though, because you have a special relationship with Wimbledon in that you are a record holder at Wimbledon, 23 straight Wimbledons. Um, so let's begin with that. I, I just learnt that. I didn't know that yeah. until today. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, for me, growing up, it was the place to... To, you know, you dream of just playing there. Um, I'll never forget the first time I kind of walked in there was actually to watch a Davis Cup match years and years ago. GB against Australia, I think that was Jeremy Bates and Pat Cash were playing. But yeah, it's just always had that, you know, it's the place that you look at, you know, when you're growing up as, you know, in these junior years, 10, 11, 12, and you're watching the TV. Wimbledon, for me, it still is and always has been the number one event that you always wanted to play. So to eventually play there was amazing. And, uh, you know, to compete there and to play that many times that I did, uh, yeah, for me, that's the highlight. It, it really is. It doesn't, it doesn't get any better than playing on the grass at Wimbledon for me. And it's, yeah, I mean, I played some good matches there as well. I had a couple of heartbreaking matches as well. Um, but still, you wouldn't swap it for any. I mean, obviously, I would have liked to one more matches there. But it's, um, I think that feeling to play there and get involved in, in, in a tight match, or it's just you don't replicate that anywhere else in the world, I think. Because you played... Juniors, singles, doubles, mixed doubles at Wimbledon th throughout all of that. Where did the highlight come? Was, was singles always the most special because you're out there doing what, let's face it, you, you set out to do as a kid? Yeah, yeah, playing singles for sure. I mean, I played a couple of times on centre court there against Agassi 2002 and 2004. Lost both times. Uh, but the second time that I played him, it was you know, a more competitive match. It was kind of quite a tight four-set match, and I kind of got into that one a bit more... Um, and even though I lost those matches, to play on centre court at Wimbledon with my, you know, my parents there and brothers, everyone watching was, yeah, I'll never forget that. And then just the buzz of walking on that court was, yeah, obviously you want to win more matches. And, and but yeah, they're 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 the days I'll never forget. I remember talking to Miles McLaggen about this sort of conundrum, asking him. I think he played Agassi first round one year as well, and and another year he played what he described as a chain-smoking German, Carsten Brash. And I said, so which one would you prefer, to be on centre court against Agassi or on the outside courts with, a let's face it, a better chance of winning? What, what would you have gone for? Do you know what I think? I mean, looking back at the time when you're playing, you, 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 yeah, it's a tough question, but I think you obviously want a so-called more winnable, better draw for yourself. Um, I think the dream is maybe to, you know, to win a round or two and then play one of those guys you know, once you kind of gone into the tournament a little bit. But, you know, having said that, you know, just like that, you just asked me the question, they're, they're your highlights, they're the days that you remember the most and, and, and um, you look back on the days, not so much on the, on the matches that you played on the outside courts, although it's still great to play there. It doesn't compare to playing on centre court, you know, if, you know, the opportunity for me, Agassi was my favourite player. Um, always thought he was so exciting and, and, you know, always wanted him to, you know, in the Agassi-Sampras rivalry, I was always in Agassi's corner, I was always wanting him to win. So yeah. to play him, I remember actually the first year I played him, I was actually getting coached by a guy called Joe Giuliano, who was a friend of Agassi. And um, this was in kind of the February, March leading up to Wimbledon. And, and uh, Agassi had never seen me play. And he, 
he was calling Joe in, in the hotel room and I happened to be in the room one day and, and answered the phone and it was Agassi wanted to speak to Joe and then I heard Joe speaking to Agassi about my game and trying to because Agassi was trying to help over the phone a little bit um, and then a couple of months later I ended up playing him it was quite quite weird but but it was great I, lo I loved it yeah that's the voice of Jamie Delgado here on ATP Tennis Radio um, the decision to retire from playing is that an easy decision the way it all happened or was it still a, a tough decision I think for me personally, my experience was I was starting, I was I was just playing doubles in the last uh, X amount of years of my career, and my back was giving me a lot of problems, and I was in quite a bit of pain, and it was restricting me a lot. So I started to, you know, lose matches that I would be expecting to win, and I wasn't able to prepare for events properly, and and um, and that wasn't fun. So when I decided to stop, for me personally, it kind of ended up being a bit of a. It, was, it, it took a while to come to that that moment because you're kind of in, in in denial a little bit. You're trying to fight through situations that were, you know, difficult for for, for me at the time. Um, but it was kind of a relief in the end because it was because I wasn't enjoying playing in, in the pain and losing the matches that I was uh, that I was losing. I um, no, I, I kind of very quickly was fine with it and at the time I was coaching I was kind of playing and coaching with Gilles Muller yep. um, so it wasn't kind of a day that I stopped I was kind of playing and playing with Gilles in doubles and coaching at the same time and that went on for about six eight months before then I sort of you know I was really enjoying the coaching side with him and when it was coming to play the doubles with him I wasn't enjoying it really that much so just grad it was kind of a bit of a gradual I remember the first trip I went on without playing was the US Open um, with Gilles and that was a kind of a strange feeling going to a, going to a tournament not playing yourself that was that was quite odd but I, I uh, but I've enjoyed the, the coaching side of it yeah by the sounds of it coaching then was always something that you intended to do did, did you did you adopt a coaching style through working with Gilles it was that something that happened kind of organically I think more organically really it wasn't when I was playing if you'd have asked me would I sort of continued coaching I don't know what sort of answer I would have given I wouldn't have definitely not just said yes straight away it wasn't like my intention to do that it kind of just happened um, and I enjoyed it with Gilles I was it was someone that I gotten really well with you, you know in, in our whole career um, so that was quite easy to, to be with someone that I got on well with um, he was struggling a lot at the time because he'd had bad injuries he was down to about 400 and something in the world and thinking of retiring and, and you know fortunately we had a good run I think he got to about 30 something like that um, and I really enjoyed being part of that it was that was really good but no it wasn't like I, I made a clear decision to start coaching it just happened really and how did the relationship with Andy come about because that obviously was a step up in in level ultimately but also in exposure and all kinds of things yeah I mean Andy's another one that I've known for a very long time um, you know in a, in a as friends as well I remember seeing him for the first time when he you know, as a teenager, and I remember sort of hearing about the the Murray brothers coming from Scotland that they were good players, and I'll never forget meeting them for the first time in in London, and and um, you know, always looked out for them when they were younger, and, and always got on well with both of them. So it was, uh, you know, that helps as, as well. Obviously, I, I live uh, close to Andy, and and um, when I started working with Gilles, and, and I had the kind of uh, you know chat with Andy's team about potentially uh, joining Andy's. As a, as a coach, it was uh, it was an unbelievable opportunity and something that I was really really excited to to be involved in, um, and uh, so 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 I took it and uh, you know it, it went really well. 
I think this is going to be a relatively easy question to ask, but best moment with Andy? Well, I mean, he obviously won Wimbledon. He's, uh, you know, the world number one was a big one. I don't know what, I mean, he won the Olympics as well that year. There were so many different... That year was huge. Yes, it was so, so much was going on. Um, You won the, so I wasn't actually there for the Olympics. Do you know what, it's not as easy as you think. I mean, I think the world number one, potentially, actually. You know what, I'm saying that not very sort of convinced in, 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 because Wimbledon for me is the the biggest tournament by far, but he'd already won Wimbledon. Um... Why I say number one is because, you know, why I'm maybe saying number one is because it's something that he'd never achieved before. Mm-hmm. So I think it's always fun when you when you part, you know, you're working with a player and they achieve something that, that, that they've never achieved before. I think it's it's a huge achievement. Um, getting to the final of the French Open, although that was a big disappointment to lose in the final, he was, you know, that was his best ever as well play court uh, season. Yeah, I like to sort of take pride in, in, in being involved in things that they maybe hadn't have done before. So that, that's why I say number one. But yeah, Wimbledon champion, it's tough to beat that. It is, and I've always wanted to ask, actually, how important was winning the Olympics in, in then him winning Wimbledon? Winning the Olympics for a second time? Yeah. Yeah, I th- hugely important. We had a, we had a, it was a huge goal of his to, to win that again. He was the first player in history to defend uh, the Olympic gold in, in singles. Um, and we had a training camp in Mallorca after Wimbledon that year, which was very intense, worked very, very hard, and, and the goal was very much on the Olympics. Um, so for him to, you know, to realise that dream again and, and win it again was a you know, huge satisfaction for, for the whole team because we knew how much it meant to him. Um, so I, I would say that winning the Olympics was, was huge, yeah. Now, of course, there, there are two chapters to your relationship with Andy. Uh, unfortunately, um, the last what year, eighteen months, probably hasn't hasn't been easy for, for either of you, I'd imagine. How is he doing? I mean, let's start with that. Yeah, doing much better. I mean, he's uh, he's feeling much better than he was before. So it's, it's um, you know, which is great to see. Great, great for him, obviously, primarily, but for us to see him actually kind of being able to do kind of normal things. You know, in his life that were were painful for him, you know, just walking or even sleeping, putting his shoes, you know, basic things, sitting at tables for a while, all that sort of stuff was very painful. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, a lot, if not all of the pain has gone now. So, so that's, uh, you know, very encouraging. So I think, you know, where, where it's going to take us, we obviously don't know yet, but he's doing at this stage, he's doing really well. It must be difficult for you as well, because you, you must be living it with him and you must also be, as his coach, in limbo a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we are a little bit. I mean, we're obviously still there for him and, and been through the whole rehab process, you know, a couple of two or three times in the last you know year and a half. Um, and for me, obviously, he's when he has his operation, he has a you know x amount of weeks where the tennis is not a, a priority. He's he's then just trying to get himself better and and you know going through all the different exercises that he has to do. So I'm there a lot less then. Um, but still in contact with him and, and you know seeing him and, and, and stuff like that. But it's uh, and I've been using that time to do a few different things, um, you know like being here for example and a couple of private things going on. I also did like a coaching the MPC for the LTA, which is their top uh, coaching course. Um, so I've tried to use the time as, as as best as I can to you know improve myself as well. You must all have been on Bob Bryan watch. How, how much, I mean people have joked about you know the the fact that Andy and Bob have been in in contact. Bob Bryan, for those who don't know, has had the, the, the same surgery that Andy's just had on his hip. Um, how real has that connection been? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bob is someone that, you know, myself and Andy and, and uh, you know, we know really well. We've known him for many years. So a very easy person to to talk to. And he's been completely honest with us of how it's gone and, and uh, been very transparent with the ex, you know, with, with his with his rehab and, and what was wrong. And so uh, to see Bob, you know, be very successful and, and not just obviously winning matches, but the, the, you know, from what he's told us, he's feeling fantastic and, and doesn't really feel that he's had anything done in his hip anymore. So that's obviously encouraging signs as well. But the, yeah, the contact is, you know, I personally will message him maybe every few weeks just to see how he's getting on. Maybe, maybe Andy a, a bit more, I, don't, I haven't asked him. But there's definitely a lot of contact with how he's getting on and it's all been positive, really. Because there was talk of Wimbledon for Andy or that was put out, put out there as a, a possible, if not probable. That being shelved now and it's just a case of him getting better as a human being rather than as a tennis player at the moment? Yeah, I think first things first is just to feel better. I think he's, he's, you know, the last year and a half he's been, or we've all been, you know, trying to get ready for certain events. And, um, you know, I think this time it'll be just primarily just to get himself feeling better and and not put timelines on it or events on it and put that pressure on it, uh, an expectation to be ready by a certain date. And if he's not, then that's a problem. So I think just to keep it, just to get himself better, really, and then see, see where we go from there. Jamie Delgado, coach of Andy Murray and now part-time tennis TV commentator. That is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Seb Lozier and my thanks to Jamie Delgado, to David Ferrer and to Reem Aboulel. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest from Madrid at atptour.com. You can listen live all week on ATP Tennis Radio through the ATP website, direct on TuneIn or through the Tennis TV app where you can also subscribe to watch the matches. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. That's at ATP Tennis Radio for both. Or you can email us the good old-fashioned way at studio at atptennisradio.com. Join in with our regular predictions competition. It's easy. All you have to do is send in your three predictions. First, who's going furthest out of the players seeded 1-8, to eight, then seeded 9-16, to 16, and finally from the rest of the field. So three picks, one to eight, nine to 16, and finally from the rest of the field. Every time we choose a listener representative to go up against the rest of the ATP Tennis Radio team. And so far, the listeners are doing pretty well, I must say. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. Otherwise, enjoy the tennis. We'll catch you next week. If you like this podcast, Please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review.